So our next speaker is uh, going to talk to us about a very important topic, especially given the comments that uh, Melanie made about the culture wars. And uh, so Jill Blumenthal is an associate professor of medicine and an infectious disease physician at the University of California, San Diego. She provides primary care services for the full spectrum of people with HIV, children, teens, and adults at our UCSD Owen Clinic and through the Mother, Child, and Adolescent HIV program. She also has a heavy presence in our community, working part-time with the Gay Men's Health and Transgender Clinic at the Family Health Centers in San Diego County. And <clears throat> she has been a frequent community speaker on HIV prevention and education efforts extensively, lecturing extensively in the community and at academic programs in her areas of specialty. She's focused both her clinical research and her clinical care activities specifically on HIV prevention with PrEP and on transgender and gender non-binary individuals who are receiving or need uh, hormone therapy and other supportive care. And this has been a real boon for us at UCSD because there aren't very many people doing that kind of work. She serves as an advisory board member of the Laurel Foundation Trans Camp for Youth and as the medical director for the Chicano Federation Beehive Project, a project that studies HIV prevention and resource use in the San Diego County area. So Jill is going to talk with us about providing gender affirming care to transgender and gender diverse individuals living with and at risk for HIV. She's emerging as one of our international experts in this area. Thank you, Connie, for that incredibly kind introduction. It's wonderful to be here. I am not sitting in an attic. It's just a room that has a, a, a funny background to it. Um, so because uh, in the interest of time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move. Uh, this is, uh, Dr. Benson already mentioned what I will be talking with you today about. Here are my disclosures. You have the learning objectives, uh, but just to reiterate, um, at the end of the presentation, uh, hopefully you will be able to use key terminology for gender identity and gender affirmation, talk about best practices for gender affirming hormone therapy management, discuss HIV treatment and prevention in transgender populations, and identify strategies to improve HIV and PrEP care in transgender communities. So, you know, this, uh, I think comes on the heels of what uh, Dr. Thompson was talking about, uh, the rise in transgender or anti-LGBTQ legislation. Um, there, sorry. Um, you know, why does this all matter? Why do, why do we need to talk about being culturally sensitive? And why, why does it matter that we talk about sexual orientation and gender identity? There are lots of reasons. So there is a growing population, particularly in younger generations, the Gen Zers, um, who identify as LGBTQ+. Um, and, and we're going to see more and more of them in our, in our clinics and in the community. We know it's, a, it's an important population for many reasons, particularly uh, when we look at what happens to youth. Um, and there are a lot of statistics related to LGBTQ plus youth. I'm going to focus 
uh, more on transgender individuals, we know that young transgender individuals uh, experience very high rates of suicidal ideation. And just to, you know, another highlight or, a, you know, not a good highlight, but two and three LGBTQ plus youth report that someone tries to convince them to change their sexual orientation or gender identity. This is happening when they're young. These are all impressionable moments for people. What does this do? Um, well, what ends up happening is, is they, they receive a lot of mistreatment at school. Um, they report being physically or verbally attacked. And then as they get older and enter the workforce, they're mistreated at work. Um, all of this leads to potential discrimination in healthcare um, as well because of their experiences just in general in the world, but many of them avoid delay, uh, avoid or delay care when they're sick or injured. 40% um, avoid preventative care. And then a lot report just having physicians who aren't comfortable with them or refuse to give them care. And all of the legislation that's recently been passed you know, is 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 focused on uh, young adults, and there is a perception that young adults are are receiving uh, gender affirming care at astronomical rates. Now, while that has uh, changed over the last few years, and there are more uh, youth and young adults accessing gender affirming care, I think it's also important to note that some things aren't changing that rapidly. Young people are having. Uh, mastectomies at about the same rates that they were in 2019. Um, and then I think this is another important thing because there's a big conversation about genital surgery and very few young adults are having genital surgeries. Um, you know, most of the care is happening when people uh, turn 18, but it's really important that they're able to access these things at younger ages and at least begin to explore and talk to a provider that supports them. The gender unicorn is a, a visual that you may have seen. It's uh, a nice way of looking at the various um, aspects of gender identity and, and sexual orientation. And just to take you through it, uh, gender identity is formed in the brain. It usually happens at a young age, uh, five, six years old. Um, and these are people's experiences of being female or male. And the reason this has um, these arrows is a, a person could plot where, you know, could pick on this uh, graph where they actually fall. Because some people experience femaleness, some people experience maleness. It's not just a continuum. Gender expression is the way we uh, people present in the world and, and the, the ends of the spectrum are feminine and masculine. Sex assigned at birth is when we are talking about, um, this is previously what people use for biological sex, which is a term that we, we don't use anymore. It is, this, it is the sex that was assigned on someone's birth certificate based on the genitalia that was seen when they were born. Um, and then physical and emotional attraction come from the heart. Um, it can be for women, men, other genders. And again, there is a spectrum there. Just some key identity terms um, that you'll hear me using. Cisgender uh, is a person, or cisgender female is a person assigned female at birth whose gender identity is uh, female. Transgender is a person whose identity and assigned sex at birth don't correspond. Some of the terms that you'll see for this are trans woman, 
if we're talking about a trans woman, trans woman, transgender, female, and then you'll also see male to female. This is a medical model term that isn't uh, recommended anymore, but if a patient uses it, uh, it's okay to, you know, uh, mirror the language that they use. Um, and then uh, another common uh, term that you'll see for identity is non-binary. And, and I do want to remind people there are many identity terms that I haven't included here. Um, but non-binary is someone who doesn't identify with the binary expectations of being strictly a man or a woman. I want to remind people that gender is um, a social construct and how it comes out is really based on our cultural perceptions of what it means to be a man and a woman. Um, so just keep that in mind as we're going through this presentation. So gender affirmation is the process of recognizing, accepting, and expressing one's gender identity. As medical providers, we will um, often be helped with someone's gender affirmation goals or to help them with that process. <clears throat> I tend to think of it in uh, four domains. The medical domain is the one that we um, are usually asked to be, um, you know, asked to assist with, and that may mean uh, prescribing hormones or referring for surgeries or other procedures. But the three, you know, very big domains that you're probably going to still play a role in uh, as a provider are the social emotional domains, which is just uh, recognizing someone's chosen name, their pronouns, um, how they dress, if they come out to others, the psycho psychological affirmation, which is, you know, validating someone's gender, and then um, patients having to deal with internalized stigma or transphobia. Uh, and then the legal uh, domain is, it relates to identity documents. Um, and often we talk about people changing their name and gender marker. Um, and, and that can be a really difficult process uh, that is exacerbated by all the disconnected systems we have uh, in the health system and beyond. Um, and a lot of people ask, you know, how do you in the medical system bill for this? Um, we often use the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, um, which is just stress related to the incongruence of gender identity and sex assigned at birth. Not everyone experiences gender dysphoria. Um, I it is a question I ask of patients, but also say that this currently is how we can get, um, you know, how we're able to get coverage for some things. So that is the term that I use that may change. This is what is currently recommended as best practice. There are several treatment guidance um, uh, that have come out in the, actually been updated in the last several years. Um, the Endocrine Society updated their guidelines in 2017. Uh, the hot off the news, the hot off the press news was that the WPATH standards of care came out uh, uh, just a few months ago in 2022, and there's um, there are new sections related to HIV and uh, HIV care and prevention. Um, but probably the easiest guideline to use if you are a busy clinician and are uh, in the middle of work are the guidelines for primary and gender affirming care, transgender individuals out of UCSF. They're accessible online. Uh, you can click in different areas. It's very useful um, when you're seeing a patient in person um, and a, a really great set of guidelines. 
So here is the first audience response question. I will read it and we'll get to this later. Providers caring for transgender women living with HIV on antiretroviral therapy should, and we have four answers. I'll give people um, about a minute to answer. I'm keeping an eye on the time. I know I don't have as many choices as, um, as Dr. Sag did. Um, I don't hear any music, but that's okay. There we go, thank you. All right, I think in the interest of time, we will cut the beautiful music and get the results. Okay, monitor hormone levels if an interaction with ART is likely. And I and we'll, we'll get to this in a little bit, but good job, audience. Uh, so this is a table of most of the gender-affirming hormone therapy that is available. I say most, there are a couple of things that some provider use some providers use that may be off-label that aren't on this table, but these are the main, this is the mainstay of treatment. Um, the, the first row is testosterone therapy. So that's um, what we use for masculinizing hormone therapy. And this just gives you um, sort of the typical doses starting with initial and then increasing. Um, then there's estrogen uh, therapy and there, there are more options available. There are oral therapies. There's um, there, uh, intra, uh, there are transdermal options. There are injectable op options, including injectable pellets. And then there are adjunctive agents, which, which are mostly used in feminizing therapy um, for, for blocking testosterone um, or blocking puberty. Uh, Question is often asked about how frequently you need to monitor patients on hormone therapy. This is great for uh, providers who um, already have been doing HIV uh, treatment and prevention care because the monitoring is about the same. Um, initially, you wanna see them uh, frequently every three months through the first year. Obviously, um, each person may be a little bit different, but then in the next year, you can space that out a little bit more. Sometimes I do every four to six months. And generally speaking, you're checking labs that um, that are, are sort of generally expected that most people do uh, for other things. The, the main difference is that you're checking total testosterone um, and you and estradiol, depending on what therapies uh, you're, you're, uh, you have a patient on. And then, you know, just on the, the top figure shows the, the target testosterone because, you know, what is the range that you're going for? Um, and it is the normal, you know, non-trans uh, range that we, that we target. There are a lot of, um, Every, this is done a little bit differently depending on what people's desires are. Not everyone wants to feminize or masculinize maximally. So it will depend with each person what you want to do. Just wanted to talk a little bit about surgery since this is uh, quite important and it's, it's, it's coming up more and more uh, as our uh, insurance system has expanded, particularly in, in certain states. 
um, feminizing surgery is sought by a range of people, um, and there are a variety of surgeries that people may request. Um, and you know, the ones that mostly people sort of think of when we talk about transgender individuals are genital surgeries, but there are many other surgeries that people want. Um, facial feminization is definitely something that has seemed to have grown in the last uh, several years. A word on fillers, there are licensed professionals that, um, that can inject fillers. Often patients get them through unlicensed professionals and there are risks. I do like to you know, make sure patients are aware of that. And I'm sure for all of the infectious diseases doctors in the audience, they've seen uh, fillers travel and do things that aren't great. Um, so it's something that I always wanna make patients you know, aware of the potential adverse effects from that. Masculinizing surgery, one of the most commonly sought after surgery is chest surgery. And that can be both a breast, that can be breast reduction or chest reconstruction. You can see some studies show that up to 50% of people um, want these surgeries. Um, one of the things that will come up is sometimes uh, insurance companies say that patients need to be on hormone therapy for a certain amount of time before they can have it. Hormones will not do anything to a person's chest. Um, so this is where you as a provider can be an advocate for these patients um, and, and write letters saying that, you know, you recommend the surgery for their, uh, you know, given their gender dysphoria. And then there are other surgeries that are sought after. I think, again, one of the... Um, a growing area is uh, genital surgery. Um, it's still fairly uncommon, but as more and more surgeons are able to do this, there, there are more fellowship programs where people are specifically studying um, gender affirming surgeries. This will become more available and patients may seek this out. So we're gonna shift into HIV and transgender people in the US. Uh, just some numbers about prevalence. So overall, you know, for, for all comers, the estimate is that 0.39% of people uh, live with HIV. Transgender women, much higher than that. 14% um, is from some uh, a meta-analysis of, of different studies, but there are, um, there's data that shows that uh, and certain populations are affected even more, that transgender women um, of color, Black women in particular, um, have rates up to 50%. Transgender men, this is less, less well studied, but we're starting to have more data in this area, it really has a lot to do with their sexual um, behaviors and, and um, the activities they engage in, but some estimates of about 3%. Um, and as I alluded to, uh, we know that the uh, HIV diagnoses are higher among Black uh, transgender individuals and then for transgender women. There's also a very large number of Hispanic uh, Latina individuals that live with HIV. Um, in terms of HIV treatment, there have been a multitude of studies now really going back to um, uh, the early 2000s that show that transgender women living with HIV have poorer outcomes across the HIV care cascade in every area that we speak of, lower retention and care, ART use, adherence, and, and rates of viral suppression. This is multifactorial. We'll talk a little bit about why that happens. There definitely are some studies that have come out that show that you know some of this may be improving, but um, we know that this is a 
um, a group of individuals that um, uh, that faces a lot of health disparities and that can contribute to these worse outcomes. This is some data from the Ryan White Program 2020, which looks at viral suppression across various groups. Um, at, the, um, at the top, you can see the overall viral suppression rate is 89.5%. Um, and it's lower for transgender individuals. It's about 84%. But then when you look across different groups of transgender individuals, um, those rates are even lower. Um, and you can see it in, in Black individuals, younger individuals, those that are unstably housed. And then you know, when you when you combine some of those factors, even worse viral suppression rates. So some of the factors associated with viral non-suppression will not surprise most people. Um, many of these things are, are uh, factors associated with viral suppression for non-trans individuals. Um, but the, the, a few that are really important to highlight is the prioritization of transition-related medical care over HIV care. And that's why it is critical for providers um, of HIV care and HIV preventive care to have some familiarity with um, hormone therapy and, and gender affirming care in general. Um, there is you know, an ongoing perception that, uh, that there's drug interactions between hormones and HIV. Um, and then the, the negative experiences that patients have had with providers and health systems for a multitude of reasons, but even as basically as name and gender marker not being acknowledged or getting, or, you know, people getting it wrong. The, the term um, dead named is very common among trans individuals and it's being called by the name that they were given at birth that a lot don't identify with. Good news on drug-drug interactions. Um, the most commonly used ARVs, um, you know, that we that we tend to use, um, have the least potential to impact gender-affirming hormone therapy, and that's all the NRTIs, unboosted INSTEs, and then some of our newer NNRTIs. So the the critical thing for this is to monitor dose of hormone therapy based on desired clinical effects, adverse effects, and hormone concentrations. Uh, so the group got it, the answer to the question of um, providers caring for transgender individuals um, taking ARVs should monitor the hormone levels if an interaction is likely. Fortunately, interactions are not that likely. I wanted to talk a little bit about comorbidities. All of the things that we've been talking already in this conference may be magnified for, for transgender individuals because of the potential contribution of hormone therapy. So um, in terms of waking, we know that hormone therapy can do that. We know that um, in particular, um, es you know, bo both estrogen and testosterone can cause weight redistrib redistribution and changes in muscle mass. Estrogens, estrogens are specifically known to cause weight gain. Um, so some of the things that I consider, um, you know, like what we've discussed before, I try to stick with the ARVs. I try to um, suss out if this it could be related to the hormone therapy. If there's any ability to reduce the dose, if the patient is willing, we might try that. And then, of course, the other things, diet and exercise, um, and then um, the GLP-1 agonists that have been used uh, more and more. 
Um, cardiovascular risk, similarly, we know about the impact of HIV, but then hormone therapy in particular, we know that there's a greater risk for venous thromboembolic disease um, and increased risk for hypertension, dyslipidemias, and stroke. So some of the things that I consider with these patients, I, I really try to avoid PIs um, and a back of ear. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe TAF in patients with hyperlipidemia. I know these are all uh, things that are have been hotly debated. I think from a hormone therapy standpoint, one of the big things we can do um, is uh, change people to injectables or patches instead of pills, because um, those two agents are less likely to cause thromboembolic disease. And then it can't be said enough, obviously, someone who's smoking, uh, working on smoking cessation with that person. Um, in terms of bone and renal health, um, we know that um, that there's an increased risk of risk of osteoporosis, particularly in people who undergo gonadectomy, um, and they're and they're using androgen blockers. Um, so that's that's one issue, and and here TAF is often the the solution, and then other lifestyle modifications. Um, renal impairment this this can be tricky for um, you know how to assess this. People wonder: Are you supposed to use the sex assigned at birth or the gender identity? And um, so best guidance says that we should um, we should use gender identity after the patient has been on hormone therapy for uh, greater than six months. I might argue if you don't have that information, you could still use their gender identity. Um, and you know, obviously, these would be for patients uh, where there's any question of a borderline creatinine clearance. Um, uh, but but really, gender identity should be the should be what's being used for these calculations. Um, how do how do we best facilitate HIV care engagement? Um, I, I think I've tried to hit this home that gender affirmation is incredibly important and things as basic as chosen name and pronouns can be uh, very effective for, for patients in terms of their viral suppression. And what we never want to do is use hormone therapy as a carrot. We know that um, making access to that based on doing things like being adherent to ARVs or even uh, telling people to stop smoking and you're not going to get hormone therapy until you stop smoking. Those things don't work. Um, so integrating HIV care and gender uh, gender care, peer navigation is really important and, and, and that is used for a lot of different aspects of HIV care. But having visible transgender staff in the clinic is really helpful for patients to see people like them in the spaces that they're going to. And then, of course, um, using a trauma-informed approach, recognizing and interacting with transgender people living with HIV, especially women as women, um, and then just, you know, acknowledging the forms of violence, stigma, and discrimination that they experience. So in the next question, we're going to move into prep in these last few minutes, um, which is which of the following or which statement is true regarding the use of transgender um, individuals? We'll give it 30 seconds. Cue the music. I don't know what this is. Sounds like something my Casio um, keyboard would have played when I clicked a button back in the 80s. All right, I think we can stop. See what the group said. 
Okay, so uh, oral prep doesn't affect estradiol testosterone levels in transgender individuals. We will come back to that. So HIV prevention, if you're gonna remember anything, uh, here's some takeaways right now. Um, we know that PrEP uptake has been suboptimal for transgender populations. Um, I think those things are changing over time and there've been greater efforts, but we know that that's still going on. Um, Cabotegravir, long acting, uh, you're not supposed to use with silicone fillers, uh, silicone um, and fillers in general uh, in the buttocks and you can't inject in other places. There are a lot of different options and actually the IAS USA guidelines just came out and made those options seem even bigger and greater. Uh, the one caveat I will still say is that daily FTC TAF hasn't been studied in individuals engaging in vaginal sex acts, but lots of options for patients. Um, very quick reminder that the 2021 updated CDC guidelines for PrEP really began to break down the barriers of categories and risk categories specifically, and just say anyone that's sexually active um, and some of the following criteria um, may, be, um, may be a good candidate for PrEP. And we know that it's supposed to be discussed with anyone who is sexually active. Prep uptake, you know, years ago we weren't doing so well. I just this is this is a positive finding, and uh, this study um, by Erin Wilson and 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 her group uh, showed that nearly uh, 95% of people that are, had heard of PrEP and almost half had taken it in the last 12 months. Now this is in San Francisco. I think this is a model. I know that there are different, um, there are different things that make that true in San Francisco, perhaps in, uh, less in other places, but we know we can do this. PrEP persistence, um, I, I wanna, just in the interest of time, I wanna look at the, uh, the chart on the, uh, right-hand side. And this looks at the median days of PrEP use prior to discontinuation. So the smaller the number, the more likely that um, someone, you know, the shorter they were on PrEP and, and transgender women who have sex with men um, come out in this statistical model after adjusting um, for different variables. So still a group that continues or that discontinues PrEP at higher rates compared to some other, uh, other groups. Um, just to highlight, because this, um, you know, th there's been a lot of talk of this in the last two years, injectable cabotegravir for PrEP. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a great number, or there were a lot of people enrolled in this study. Um, and while not statistically different, um, there was lower, um, lower incidence in people taking cabotegravir versus daily oral FTC TDF. And then there was a, a subset of patients presented at um, uh, IAS this summer, which showed that a, a smaller subset, uh, in a smaller subset, that hormone therapy doesn't impact cabotegravir concentrations. Um, which is very important for patients. So this is one of the things I really stress because it comes up with patients. Well, what's going to happen with my hormone therapy? Is PrEP going to affect it? We have more and more data that's come out that there aren't clinically relevant uh, interactions bidirectionally. I think there's still more data uh, that we need to sort of definitively say that. But right now, the data is really strong to show that both that with most of the regimens we're using, so FTC, TAF, FTC, TDF, and then cabotegravir, there isn't an effect on um, hormone therapy and neither on tenofovir levels. 
So which is true? Um, yes, most uh, people got this. I will say that the IAS USA guidelines just came out saying that on-demand prep could be used as a C3 recommendation. So I think it's something that providers are starting to think about, and there is enough data that we have on the bidirectional effects that suggests that that could be an appropriate strategy for some transgender individuals on hormone therapy. So here are some um, best practices that I use in meeting, particularly uh, transgender individuals, but all patients, and you know, and how how to best collect gender health data. So when I meet patients, I introduce myself, I use my pronouns, and then I say, "What's your name? How would you like to be addressed here? Um, and what pronouns do you use?" Uh, the two-step method is uh, best practice in collecting gender health data where you would ask about someone's current, agen uh, current gender identity first, and if necessary, ask about their sex assigned at birth second. <clears throat> Overall, trying to use less gendered language using a neutral and inclusive approach, and then maintaining an up-to-date organ inventory that's available in some uh, electronic medical records. This is very well received by patients, and uh, they know that it, it may help them with their care going forward. And then, you know, this can't be said enough, creating a welcoming and affirming environment for patients. You need to look at what your environment is and make changes as needed. Intake forms and EMRs should have uh, multiple gender identities and sexualities included. Again, using patients' chosen names and pronouns, very important, have providers that are knowledgeable. If it's not you, know who to refer to. Wraparound services available on site is always great. If not, warm handoffs into the community, very important. And then having transgender images um, on education materials, brochures, and on a website so that people feel included. So in summary, transgender individuals experience many health disparities, including HIV and increased risk for HIV. Hormone therapy and other affirming care is important for HIV care engagement. Some medical comorbidities could be amplified by hormone therapy. Um, so it's important to discuss all of the possibilities there. Um, different PrEP administration options are available for transgender individuals, and there's very little concern for interactions with hormones. Finally, clinical competency, hormone therapy provision, and a welcoming environment are really essential to helping patients engage in care. I, I work with a lot of wonderful people who have, who have shared thoughts over time, and I think we will go into the Q&A session. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Blumenthal, for a superb overview of providing uh, excellent care for transgender individuals. And we have a number of questions that are uh, We'll give you an opportunity to expand on a couple of your thoughts. And then uh, I also have some prepared since I find the topic fascinating. So hopefully we can get through all of these. So okay. uh, simple one to start with. You mentioned standards of care and uh, 
organizations that produce those. One of our audience members asked what WPATH is. What is that? Ah, sorry, the World Professional Association of Providers of Transgender Care. Um, and it is, it's, it's been, it's a longstanding organization. Um, it's grown in size over years. Um, they offer a lot of great coursework, especially for people who are, are really interested in diving deep. And there are a lot of um, uh, providers of HIV care and researchers that are on the WPATH and, and hold positions of, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say authority, but, but help make some decisions and we're part of the, you know, writing the guidelines. Great. Now, this one may put you on the spot just a uh -oh. bit. <laughs> you don't mind that. No. Um, the uh, Knowing that you provide uh, care to children and teens, one of our audience members asked about whether surgery and hormone treatments should be offered to patients who are under the age of 18. Sure. So, and not putting me on the spot, I appreciate the question. This comes up quite frequently. I will say, um, you know, Connie said I, I provide uh, services to children. I have yet, I, I mostly see patients above the age of 18. So that makes it a little bit easier for me, but I work with a lot of providers that see younger people. Um, it is a very, you know, there's no simple answer to that other than it should be made um, in conjunction with a patient's family, the patient, their mental, a mental health provider and their provider. It is not in my mind for the, the government to intervene on things like that. And it is a conversation that needs to happen. Um, it may not be right for someone, but there are so many risks with withholding these, what I would call life-saving life therapies uh, for transgender individuals. And if you saw what I, what I noted in that one of my earlier slides was that we, we know that people are getting hormone therapy at younger ages, Puberty blockers are a great way to sort of uh, pause the time while people are figuring things out. I didn't talk about that that much, but surgeries are, are very rarely occurring in individuals under the age of 18. I think it would have to be a very, uh, again, very well thought out and have to take many factors into consideration when making that decision. Great. Thank you for that. Um, Similar to creatinine clearance calculations, how do you adjust for gender identity at a certain point for using the cardiovascular disease calculators? Or do you? That is a, that's a great question. Um, I think what, what I try to do for both of these things, I wanna see what the worst case scenario would be. Like what is the worst creatinine clearance if I did it either way? Similarly with the cardiovascular disease risk calculator. Um, you know, the, with patients living with HIV, we already know that that's not necessarily well factored into making decisions about cardiovascular risk. So then if you're adding estrogen, I think my default is to be conservative and try to be protective of that. So I want to see sort of what the worst risk could be and then discuss it with patients how they want to proceed with that. Great. Thank you. I'm going to jump around to a little bit uh, different topic here, but we'll come back to hormone therapy. There's still a lot of questions about that, but sure. um, there's a question uh, about whether we're walking back concerns about estrogen use and PrEP such that you'd consider 211 for trans women and also uh, 
the audience member asked about 211 being considered for trans men, um, despite not being studied for receptive vaginal sex. So maybe you could expand on your thoughts yeah. a little bit, but maybe before you do, there was sure. also a question about what 211 prep is. So maybe start with that and then move into some of those other questions. Sure. So 211 is on-demand prep. It's taking um, two tablets of what's only been studied is TDF-FTC. We know that people use TAF-FTC for this as well. Two tablets, two, uh, two to 24 hours before sexual activity, and then followed by 24 hours after 24 hours again. So basically it's uh, three days of protection of a sexual encounter. Um, so I, I could, I could, Alex, we could talk about this offline. I have a, I, I have a, uh, an email thread now going with uh, some of the people who create, who just advise this for ISUSA. And I think it's really provocative and really great. Um, I, I, there was a lot of concern when some of the initial studies came out that there were some uh, decrements in tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate concentrations. I think there have been more studies since that really have removed that concern. Um, so I think what, you know, the recommendation, again, it's a C3. So they're not saying that there is uh, evidence uh, directly to this question. And I think that that's to your point, we don't have direct evidence, but can you extrapolate from key case studies that have been done for um, receptive anal sex, um, and then sort of applying the hormone therapy data that we have in these other studies. I think what it comes to, so, you know, I, I think this will be interesting to see how this rolls out. This literally just came out a few days ago. I, I just gave a talk where I said, and two-on-one should not necessarily be used for transgender individuals. And I think really the field is trying to push things a little bit because we know when someone is in front of us and says, I just can't take this daily, it is not working. I think we wanna be able to say, well, maybe there is another option for you. And we have enough data to say it may work. Um, obviously we feel safer with what we've studied, but that's generally my approach. Um, and I think it will be interesting to see what the discussion is after the IS, IAS USA guidelines become more readily available to people. Great questions. Um, yeah. When transgender people ask for hormone therapy, who provides that? Do you manage that uh, as their main, as their ID provider, or refer them to an endocrinologist or PCP? Right. Um, this is very provider dependent. The argument I'm making is that anyone who cares for patients living with HIV should have at least a basic knowledge of this to even get patients started. Because uh, it's actually very easy to start people on hormone therapy without a lot of risk. I think if you if you feel comfortable doing it, and there's a lot of resources out there to, to get you practicing how to prescribe hormone therapy. Um, if you are the primary care doctor, it might be good to engage an endocrinologist who can help support things. But I think having those basic skills are, are very important. Now, there's some models where like, it's a little bit confusing where I work, where I'm an infectious diseases trained individuals 
individual, but because I do so much trans care, I'm now seeing patients without um, HIV or, or, you know, interest in PrEP and they're coming to me. So it's really what works in your system. And I think it's really about finding who those people are and just making sure that you know them and can refer patients if it's not you, but strongly encourage it to be you if it's something that you feel like you can do. Great. Um, are mammograms recommended for transgender women? Yeah, so the 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 guidelines follow uh, for non-trans uh, individuals. So cis women, it's recommended to start them somewhere between the age of 40 and 45. I use the same guidance, but um, after they've been on hormone therapy and uh, there are different uh, guidelines that say two years, five years, 10 years, just like a lot of things, it's a little bit variable. And I think sometimes depending on the patient, certainly there, any family history might make you want to do it sooner. Um, and some patients are, are very anxious about it and excited because getting a mammogram, while for cis women may be one of the worst experiences, for <laughs> transgender women, it actually can be really affirming. Um, obviously, we don't want to waste resources, but I think it depends on what the patient wants. So it could happen as soon as two years, but it could be longer than that. But they are recommended in patients taking hormone therapy. And hopefully we, these last two will be just brief answers because yeah. we're running out of time, but What's your recommendation on how to affirm patients correctly when the EMR is not inclusive? Do you have tips for that? Yeah, so this has been our experience for a while until recently, and we've pushed on it very hard. So the first thing is, is advocate, form a committee, try to work on this with your electronic, electronic medical record people, your uh, IT folks. Um, within your clinic, though, there are things that you can do. Um, you know, you can make sure that when the labels print out for someone that you actually put their name that they like to go by. You work with a couple of people who get this, and when they see patients will be very affirming. So it's really about training staff and providers who work in smaller arenas to do it. I also tell patients that the system is going to get it wrong, and I, I am so sorry for that, and we're going to keep working to make it better. Also encourage patients to get that feedback, um, you know, in a, uh, we have a, we listen, so that kind of thing. So maybe changes will occur. And I okay. see this last Thank question. You. The <laughs> time, we won't get to the last question. I'm just going to say really quickly, Connie. Maybe if uh, Dr. Weidner oh. can type it in the chat, you could oh, answer I can do that. I was going to say that estrogen and spironolactone is really cheap. So that that's just one thing. It's actually very cheap to pay out of pocket for it. May not work for everyone. I'll answer the question. <laughs> All right, thanks. Okay. Um, okay, I'm gonna turn this back over to Dr. Volberding and thank you for an excellent presentation, Dr. Blumenthal, and we'll move on. Yeah, so what a great and energetic uh, review of a, of a topic that obviously is, is actually increasingly, I think, in the uh in, in both in the news and in our in our clinic so uh thanks for that 